0: Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to share with us either by viewing on Facebook and YouTube or by listening on iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon. As always, we invite your input, help us to make this podcast more uh, relevant and meaningful to you. You can reach out to me at fredjeffsmith at gmail.com. Fred Jeff Smith at gmail.com, and we welcome and value your input. I am very happy today to welcome to the Thrive Podcast candidate for 19th Judicial District Judge, Colette Greggs. Ms. Greggs, thank you so much for coming by today.
1: Good morning, and thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.
0: You are from one of the most celebrated families in this city, in, in the history of this city. You are the daughter of Dr. Isaac Griggs. Talk about what it's like to grow up as a celebrity in the Baton Rouge community.
1: Um, I didn't look at it like that because he was just my dad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am a daddy's girl. So I was with him all of the time. So he was just my dad. And then what it did, people used to ask me all of the time, What was it like to share him? But those that know me know I never shared him. (laughs) 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 I mean, because everybody knew that that's Colette. So, But um, now that he's no longer here, I think about it a lot, and I know how privileged and how blessed I was to be fortunate enough to be raised under him mm-hmm. and having him as a dad. And my mom, too. What a lot! Everybody focuses on my dad with Southern University, but my mother is the one that actually first started working at Southern. She was a registered nurse in the infirmary, and she took care of all of the athletes. Yes, ma'am. While daddy was at the lab school. So that's the part of the story that kind of doesn't get told or any emphasis placed on it.
0: A lot of people don't remember that before Dr. Greggs was at Southern University, he was the band director at the lab school. I'm old enough to remember that, Mm -hmm. and uh, he he was always a wonderfully gracious individual, and uh, he raised you and your siblings to be wonderfully gracious individuals as well. But to come from such a celebrated family, I'm sure had its ups and its downs uh, as you uh, look back on it.
1: I'm of that age group when you were raised, we well, go on in your house, stay Stays in your in house. house. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I always, I was with my dad more than my siblings were. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of experienced a little bit more than they did. And I was introduced to more people. That part of it, the relationships that I made and people that I met were, I mean, those memories of that are just awesome for me. And that's what I hold on to now that he's no longer here. It was amazing, the things that I you know, I was exposed to and introduced to. He treated me. Well, back then, there weren't any girls in the band. Mm-hmm. I was the only female that was kind of allowed in the band, <laughs> except for females that were on work study. And I can name those, and it wasn't maybe three and then when i was in high school my dad had a secretary but my dad had a way of speaking and people thought he was fussing which he really wasn't but i remember this one secretary she was petrified. she was i mean oh my god he scared her to death and she wouldn't stay and i began i became his secretary i was in 10th grade at the layup school i'd get out of school at three o'clock he never came to work until afternoon anyway. But I would get out of school and go straight to the band room and I did all of his clerical or whatever else he needed to do. So yes, ma'am. I had been there for a long time. The people that were in the band, like I said before, I didn't share him, but it was like I gained this big family. And to this day, you know, they're all they call and check on me. And it's just a great experience growing up on Southern University's campus. I wouldn't have changed that for nothing in the world.
0: Yes, ma'am. Before you went into law, your background was accounting. You have uh, both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, one from Southern, one from Atlanta University, in accounting. What drew you to accounting uh, before you made the transition to law?
1: I've always been good at math. You know, I used to hear all the time, people that were good in math, excuse me, wasn't that good in English, but I was kind of good in both (laughs) of them. But I really loved math. Mm -hmm. And there was a professor of mine, well, actually two professors, Vincent Jones and Lincoln Harrison. And Professor Harrison had gone to Atlanta University, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. I had ties. So I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I was, when I enrolled at Southern, I was 16. My birthday is late in the year. And I had no clue what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't ready to go to work, and I didn't want those responsibilities, and school was always fun for me. Mm -hmm. So I was going to major in math, and then Daddy was like, what are you going to do with that degree? I don't know what I was going to do with it at that age. So they told him tell her to major major in accounting okay. and I did and I had two wonderful accounting professors I mean Mary Alice Darby and Vera Hollins you know Southern made me uh, played a plate integral part in the person that I am today yes ma'am and I mean it's just words can't express what Southern University
0: did for me so you 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 spent several years in accounting. It actually took you away from here all the way to Washington D.C. And uh, if you look at your work resume, you spent some time working for the Central Intelligence Agency uh, as an accountant, N- not as a spy, a- as an accountant.
1: Well, wait a minute. We don't know if I was a spy. <laughs> we, we don't not.
0: know. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. I, I-, I might have misspoken. <laughs> But, what was it like to work uh for the Central Intelligence Agency
1: secret <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay I'm sorry
1: no, it wasn't i had, when I finished my master's, I was at Atlanta University, which is now Clark, Atlanta mm-hmm. I got married and moved to d c and I started working at the agency it was different it took almost well it took a little bit over a year for me to go to complete and them to complete my security clearance because okay. they went to my grandparents neighbors and were just asking everything the one issue that came up because my dad traveled so much mm-hmm. and you know he served as an ambassador for Goodwill in the state of Louisiana so he was in and out of all kind of countries
2: mm-hmm.
1: and They wanted me to give them his itinerary every time he went. Well, if you know my dad, you know, I can't say what he said or the way he said it. But basically it was, I'm not working for them. Right. So, but I did, you know, start. I was one of the youngest ones at the time I came in at a GS-14 level. And it was fun at first because it was new. You know growing up in the era of get smart you remember that i do show where people had telephones in their shoes yes. and all of these little gadgets and stuff that was actually real you know they actually had stuff like that so me coming from baton rouge going to dc or the dc area i was amazed i was like oh wow they really do this kind of stuff <laughs> this is serious but it was it was new to me mm-hmm. and it was fun i was recently married So I had a lot of different things going on in my life that were really, really exciting. The thing, one thing, one of the girls that I started orientation with, and I'm not sure if I can mention her name, but anyway, she was young. She was a black female, and she was convicted of espionage. It was where I was living in the D.C. area was in the northwestern area, and there were a lot of embassies. So it kind of created a problem because we had the different foreign nationals that lived right there with us, mm-hmm. and then we w- everybody had swimming pools, and we would be out by the pool, and we would be talking back and forth. As you see, I talk a lot, and they knew that. Mm-hmm. And I would call Dad, and I was like, Dad, how did they know I talked to you know whoever? And he didn't like me working at the agency. Mm-hmm and then what the reason I left was because I handled the near eastern countries and you know in the near eastern countries women play secondary roles Mm -hmm. well back then I wasn't playing that Mm -hmm. and then um, they wanted to know what I was doing who I was doing it with who I was talking to it was just too much of an invasion into my life i wasn't raised like that Mm -hmm. you know i'd come from southern university everybody knew who i was right and daddy being who he was it was just too much of a transition from the life that i knew so i left there and went to westinghouse but the job itself when you hear creative accounting
0: Mm -hmm. believe that (laughs) (laughs) interesting interesting so, you have lived in several places uh, uh, away from Baton Rouge. You started off here, of course, and you moved to Atlanta, and then you moved to D.C., other places you have lived? That's it. And then you came back home.
1: Then I came back home. Well, that,
0: that, that's the question that I wanted to, to ask. Having lived in Atlanta, having lived in Washington, D.C., and yet making the choice to come back to Baton Rouge, plant your flag here, what went into that decision? Because a lot of people these days are trying to get away from Baton Rouge. You made the choice to come back to Baton Rouge.
1: I grew up in Baton Rouge. Yes. I had my older son, Jamal, in the Washi- in Washington, D.C. I didn't want to raise him. I wanted him to experience what I experienced. And, you know, I think I said before there was nothing like growing up on Southern University I literally grew up on that campus from the infirmary to the band well it was the music building back yes. then I grew up up there everybody knew me we were like it I went to the lab school we were in like a protected little bubble and we were excelling at everything you know the standard was excellence I mean and that's what we did mm-hmm. it was it wasn't it was just second nature to us that's all we knew
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I wanted my children to grow up in that environment. And besides, the community in Southern gave so much to me at a young age. Herman Spike's, well, Dolores Spike's husband, mm-hmm. at one point she was the president of Southern. That yes. was my next door neighbor. Yes. On the corner to my right, William Pass, he was chief of police at Southern. Lucy Verdu was my home economics teacher. Herman Spice was my math teacher. Across the street, Ken Joseph, he was the engineering professor at Southern. We literally grew up. We all went to school together. We all lived together. Mm-hmm. We played together. We had to be in the house before the streetlights came I on, understand. even though everybody knew everybody. But it was just, I grew up, in a—I just wanted my children to experience that. And they did, because both Jamal and Kyle grew up right in the band room with Daddy. <laughs>
0: At some point, you decided to make a transition from accounting into law. What drew you to the law?
1: Before the law, I went from accounting to insurance. Okay. Then the law school. The insurance bit was, unfortunately, I ended up being a single mom because I went through a divorce, which was final, And I needed a job to Mm -hmm. take care of my children. Mm -hmm. And thank God for Anna Jones. You know, Anna has been an integral person in my life, and I can't even remember how we met. But I needed a job, and, you know, I was like she— I knew my background was in accounting, and I had some really good experience in accounting. But with accounting, you can pretty much sit in a room— And just push numbers and count all day long. Mm -hmm. That's not my personality. Mm -hmm. I like talking. I like being around people. So when she asked me about State Farm, I was like, I jumped on it. had no clue about handling claims, injury claims, auto claims. Mm -hmm. I had no clue about it, but I picked it up, and I loved it. It got to a point where I was working with attorneys a lot. And that's what started my transition, I guess, the beginning of it, to look into going to law school. Mm-hmm. And then my children were graduating. I was a very active parent. And when the oldest one, Jamal, was graduating from the lab school, Kyle transferred to Scotlandville. Mm-hmm. And they were like, Ma, you got to find something else to do because we can relieve you. Yeah. And they, it was their suggestion. Kyle, my youngest one, was at a point in his life where he was like, you know, my school's not for everybody. And I was like, "Mm, but it's for you. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm not one do as I say and not as I do. Mm -hmm. And he was seriously contemplating, you know, not going to college. Mm -hmm. And then I said, you know, what's the best way to show him? So all three of us went to school. I enrolled in law school, Jamal. Had graduated from lab school. He was enrolling in Columbia University in New York. And Kyle was at Scotlandville in 10th grade. But I knew I needed to make that transition to show him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I bet them all. I said, whoever made the better grades, I'd give them, you know, a certain amount of money. But, you know, I beat about out <laughs> So I didn't have to pay him. <laughs> well, that worked out well for yes, you. Yes, it did, because the, both of them are very successful, productive Jamal is heat right in Prairieville, okay. and Kyle is now working with Rollins Sports in St. Louis, Missouri.
0: Excellent, excellent. So once you made the transition to law and graduated from law school, uh, you spent some time in the Public Defender's Office here in East Baton Rouge Parish. What was that experience like?
1: With all of my professional experience working at the Public Defender's Office is the most rewarding and the best job I've ever had. The pay wasn't nearly anywhere as good,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but being able to serve a community that gave to me and to help people, that was that's just, that's me. I, that's the best job I've ever had. The public defenders, I've, I mean, I'm still in contact with clients now and you know in the public defender's office you don't get to pick your clients right the workload is heavy right but i was used to that from state farm because you know the claims were ridiculous but the the load never bothered the workload never bothered me but you know meeting people and then when you meet people when they're at a bad space mm. in their lives it's just rewarding to be able to try and help you know I had clients, but for me, with a client is one thing, but that whole family unit is important. So I not only represented that client, I represented that entire family.
0: I'm not a lawyer, but I'm surrounded by them. My sister's a lawyer. I have several members of this church who are lawyers. I know that there are different facets of law. There's contract law. Uh, there's domestic violence, law. Uh, You seem to have been drawn to litigation. What was it about litigation that drew you as opposed to other types of law that you could have gone into?
1: When I was in law school, everyone used to ask you, you know, what are you going to do with your degree? Well, everybody says, I want to be a sports agent. My Mm -hmm. kids were athletes. All of the athletes that their friends, and I was like, oh, you know what? That'll be a cool thing. Let me go be a sports agent to represent these kids. Well, that didn't happen, Mm -hmm. and that's not as easy as everybody thinks it is. But I started clerking. I was a law clerk for Mike Mitchell in the public defender's office. I was thinking I I was in school, and I was thinking I was going to take like a month off before I would go to start working, and I interviewed, they offered me the law clerk position. And this, and I don't remember the days, but say it was like on a Thursday. So I'm thinking I'm getting ready to take at least two weeks off before I start. And he was like, be ready for Monday morning. We have a first-degree murder trial. And I was like, huh? (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But, and I thought, I said, well, okay, maybe... I'm just sitting there, you know, as a so the team will look. You no, know. Mike Mitchell afforded me an opportunity to get right in and actually work and learn, and I'll be forever being, you know, indebted to him for that. And then meeting with the clients, I guess I had a knack for talking with people, and it was, just, and I knew then. I said, you know what? I don't want to do anything but this. I would have stayed, I would still be at the Public Defender's Office, but I ran for office in 2014, and I had to leave the office when I announced my candidacy. Mm -hmm. And from there, I just decided to go into private practice. But working in the Public Defender's Office is the most rewarding. I was just told by a client's father, maybe two weeks ago, you know, people have a calling. This isn't your job, this is your calling. Mm-hmm. And when he said that it sent chills because it made me immediately think about my dad mm-hmm. because there's a YouTube video or something where he's saying he used the music as a tool, but what was most important to him through it all was to reach young lives and develop them into productive men and women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just my dad is child.
0: So, as you were defending uh, indigent people, primarily, primarily black and brown, I would imagine, yes. uh, people in the public defender's office, something spoke to you about becoming a judge, running for office. And at that point, you ceased to be just a lawyer. You ceased to be a litigator, and you stepped into the realm of politics. Let me ask you just a, a straight-up question. Okay. Do you regret the politics aspect of the law?
1: First and foremost, I am not a politician. I don't like it. I, I don't like it.
0: But you have to do it. But you're it's seeking a office part, right now. Yes. Yes.
1: It's a part of the process. And you asked me about me first considering being a judge. Mm-hmm. I didn't consider that. I was approached and I can't say who approached me at this point, but I was approached by a group of people
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they thought You know, Colette, you need to do this. And the individuals that approached me about it, I have the utmost respect for. And we were friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my friends I consider family. And it was honorable to me that they felt that I had what it took to even, because I never even considered being a judge. Mm -hmm. I was fine representing and talking with my clients and Mm -hmm. their families. And then once I did run, which I did not win in 2014, and people used to come up to me and it was like, you did so good, and I'm like, but I lost. (laughs) (laughs) You came so close. This not horseshoes. Yes. But um, it was that experience, that was a great experience for me too, even though I didn't win, because I was out the campaigning part the talking to people, meeting people, you know, meeting people where they are. That was just very, very enjoyable for Mm -hmm. me. And that's the part of this that I, that's the part of it I do like. I'm not the ordinary attorney. I'm not the ordinary person because I'm not a member of any cliques. I'm just me and those that know me know, you know, you're not gonna convince me to do something I don't wanna do. And, you know, I'm just me.
0: So how does that work? Because politics is, by nature, uh, compromise and, and uh, negotiation. And I would imagine, I, I've never run for office. I've been around people who have run for office. But I, I would imagine that at some point you are tested with regard to how much compromise you are willing to make in order to uh secure someone's support for the office that you're seeking
1: i'm not going to compromise on anything first and foremost i am a child of god and i mean that with everything in me my steps are ordered there first and you know all of the all of our Well, the majority of our elected officials here in Baton Rouge, y'all know me. And they know. If they ask me or say something that I don't agree with, I'm going to say it. I'm going to tell it. I'm getting better on how I deliver it. (laughs) (laughs) But I want my actions. I want my experience. I want my background to speak for who I am. So and at this point in my life, nobody will come nobody has come to me. I've not been asked to compromise anything. And my 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 actions speak for itself.
0: As you prepare to move to the other side of the bench, assuming that you'll be successful, what is it that you see from your current position? that you would most like to change from the judicial side of the bench?
1: I might get in trouble for saying this. I'm a stickler for time, and nothing aggravates me more than a docket saying nine o'clock, and we're sitting there for an hour waiting for a judge to take the bench. Mm -hmm. I've always, even when I was in the public defender's office, because, you know, I had to be there, but the individuals that I represent basically are hourly wage work, wage earners. Mm-hmm. If you have to be in court, that means you have to take off from work. If you take off from work, you don't get paid. And I just think that that's—it should be done better. I was raised by— my dad who if you were on time you were late so if the docket says nine o'clock you need to be there at quarter to nine and that's how I was raised mm-hmm. so not criticizing any of the 19th Judicial District or any of the other jurisdictions but that would be the one thing that will definitely change if I'm blessed to be elected.
0: There seems to be an issue with the bail system as it currently exists. There are a lot of people who have been arrested and charged with a crime, but they do not have the means by which uh, to be released from jail until trial comes, and there's a lot... I don't care what you talk about, a speedy trial, there's a long lapse of time between the time that one is arrested and charged and booked and what have you, and that person actually comes before a judge and has a trial. If those individuals are spending six months a year, 18 months in jail because they cannot uh, afford bail, uh, their lives are ruined regardless of whether or not they're found guilty or not guilty, of the charge. They have been estranged from their families. If they're parents, they've been estranged from their children. If they're children, they've been estranged from their parents. They can't go back to the job that they had. That job has long since gone. So that even if they are uh, acquitted of, uh, of, of crimes, their lives are irrevocably changed as a result of this. Is there something that judges can do to speed up this this bail process or the trial process or to make the bail process more amenable to more people so that they're not simply spending time in jail awaiting? It's one thing if, if you're convicted, then, then that's said and done. But if you're awaiting trial and you're in parish prison, your life can be as ruined as it would be if you were actually guilty of the crime. Is there something that judges can do to to affect that?
1: That's an issue that I deal with daily, you know. I have a client now who's been held continuously for 90 days. I filed what's called a 701 motion to at least release, he can't make the bail, the bond. I filed to release at least release him from his bond obligation, because it's been well over 30 days, and my motion was denied. I think, and oh, I left court really upset about that one. But I think that judges, attorneys, the district attorney's office, those are the types of things and reasons why I chose to run this this time. I was not approached by anybody to run mm-hmm. after experiencing exactly what you're talking about. My problem is I don't see anybody trying to address it. You know, people's lives are destroyed. Mm-hmm. And then you'll quit them or they oh, well, we're going to drop the charges. did Where do they go at that point? You know, so that's one of the things... I guess I should say right now, to answer your question, I don't know, but that's one of the things that is really near and dear and one of the priorities, that something needs to be done. Because we have a community... If people are guilty, and at that stage of the litigation, we don't know if they are or not. Mm -hmm. I feel personally that upon arrest, the Constitution gives everybody the right to an attorney. That's why the Public Defender's Office is so important. Mm -hmm. Because not from when they're arraigned, because that's when they ask, can you afford an attorney? I think that should happen upon arrest Mm -hmm. you know because to help try to prevent that because like you said people's lives are destroyed if they have apartments the apartments are gone and especially if you have families who can't step in Mm -hmm. and cover all of this stuff for an individual if you're arrested in your car (laughs) Your car gets impounded, that's gone. Mm -hmm. The job, that's gone. And, you know, I've had clients that call their jobs, you know, look, can you hold it? But, you know, you can't expect an employee to hold a job indefinitely while the court system is trying to figure out what's going to happen. Right. You know, so that's one of the things that are near to me and a major concern that I feel something, you know, has to be done or it needs to be addressed so that we can figure out something because when there's a break in the system, we all fail. And it needs to be where we can get together and try and figure out and provide alternatives. You know, the ankle monitor, that's the way, but then everything has, you know, everything has the potential to have problems with it. But um, we need to come together and do a better job
0: at that, I'll say. Another issue, somebody on the outside looking in, just reading the paper, trying to keep as as up-to-date as I can, there is a clear funding difference between the district attorney's office and the public defender's office. The district attorney has far more financial and therefore human resources at its disposal than the public defender's office has, And there does not seem to be any effort on the part of the powers that be to bring more balance to that. It, from what I can read, people think that if you talk about raising the funding for the public defender's office, you're perceived as being soft on crime. When really what you're trying to do is provide fairness and equity to uh, the, the justice system. Is there something that judges—I know judges are supposed to be neutral and, 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 and what have you, but I, I can imagine that there would be some advocacy that judges can uh, undertake in order to bring about fairness so that dockets can move, because if a public defender has 75, 100 cases on their desk and they're spending all of their time— trying to give uh, uh, a fair amount of attention to those cases, somebody's going to fall through the the cracks. And too often, it's people who look like us, people who are black and brown people. Is is there something that can be done to bring about more uh, equity as far as funding is concerned? I know the Public Defender's Office has been under a lot of scrutiny over the last couple of years, and and there's a lot of drama surrounding who the next public defender is going to be. But I'm just concerned about the equity and the fairness aspect of
1: it. When I became a law clerk at the Public Defender's Office, I was exposed to a small degree about the funding and the budgeting. And I had those questions then the workload is high, but that's why it's so important. Well, let me back out. Because the average person in the community, don't they don't think that public defenders are real attorneys. And that was one of the most hurtful things that ever happened to me in court at an arraignment. And the person said, I want a real lawyer. And I buckled to my knees because I'm like, wait a minute. I got to pay for this degree, (laughs) you know. But I never understood why the funding was so because if the public defender's office shuts down, the criminal justice system shuts down. Yes. We were the only attorneys that's basically mandated by the Constitution. Everybody has a right to an attorney. How were we the low on the totem pole? Even as far as insurances, you know, we paid a great amount for insurance, Mm -hmm. which I feel is a basic right. But out of all of the public defender's office in the state of Louisiana, all of those... Offices didn't come together and just have one policy, because me being an accounting background, the more policies, the cheaper the premiums. Mm-hmm. But that never happened, and those are questions that you know it just it didn't make any sense to me. But the resources that I, the, even as far as the pay, there's such a discrepancy in the level of the pay. Mm-hmm. And I would hear stories, people go to the public defender's office just to get that great experience, and then they move on. Nobody wants to stay at the public defender's office. Mm -hmm. But when I was there, there were several people that had been there for years. There's no retirement system with the public defender's office. Really? No, there is not. (laughs) And, you know, there's so many things. To be a public defender, you gotta want to do it Mm -hmm. because it's so much coming at you. And your lifestyle is definitely not the lifestyle of an attorney Mm -hmm. as people perceive it to be. Mm -hmm. But I just think the public defender's office should be, it's not state run, it's not, well, state funded, it's not parish funded. It's a funding of their own, from my understanding. And it, they get a portion of it from the tickets and you know the fines and the fees. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure if it still is, but the representation for an attorney in a public defender's office is $40. Some people couldn't pay that. And it's just unfortunate because, to me, that is the most critical and most important office. Mm-hmm. In the entire system mm-hmm. but again the majority of the clients either are black and brown or they're minimum wage employees mm-hmm. and we live in a society that just places very little emphasis on that and it's unfortunate it really is
0: the 19th JDC is comprised of majority black uh, judges currently uh, you would be adding to that if, if you are successful. Do you see that as an advantage, uh, as a disadvantage, or are you neutral about it?
1: I'm extremely neutral on that. Okay. And I say that because I was raised... <laughs> my background, color, and race is something that was never a focus in my home growing up i mean i'm sure you remember my mother when we first moved to baton rouge we moved to baton rouge in 62 there's a shopping center i don't delmar village i remember there used to be a piccadilly in there yes we couldn't go there yes because the community thought my father was black my mother was white i'm of that Age that when we lived in Shreveport they burned cross in our yards Um, I remember as a kid the dad's having to patrol outside with guns because I do remember certain things and that most people only read about in books clans you know but it's the individual to me not the color of their skin that should make a difference. Mm -hmm. I hear people say, well, that's a bad judge, or that's a bad attorney, that's a bad doctor. The traits that a person have within them, the person that they are, they bring that to whatever position they have. So that's why it's so important to me, and as we're out canvassing, I tell people, My canvassing isn't to go out and ask people to vote for me. Mainly it's to get out and vote, first of all, Mm -hmm. but to vet every candidate. Know as much as you can about that candidate because whoever that candidate is, they're going to bring it to that position. So, and we all as humans are always going to put our first foot forward. We're going to try because we want to impress But once you get to that position, then the real you comes out. Mm -hmm. And that's my message when I'm out talking with people. Look to see who that person really is. And then that will tell you not the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. You know, when I ran in 2014, that was comprised of a majority white district. I ran against a an, an incumbent white male, and I did pretty good. Mm-hmm. The message is never, for me, never about the race. It's the person.
0: You are a person of faith. <clears throat> I know that. You're a member of Mount Zion First Baptist Church. I am. Uh, can you share with us how your faith impacts your approach to the law and how it would impact your approach to the bench.
1: I've been asked numerous times, "How can you represent somebody charged of this crime or that crime?" I don't judge. How can you judge? I don't judge anybody. As a judge, as an attorney, as an accountant, as a claim specialist, I've always had to make decisions based on the actions of someone else it's the actions that you're judging it's the actions that you're making a decision on so for me i don't i don't want to sit in judgment of anybody because i too will be judged one day and we are not here to judge anybody god says high. he looks low but mm-hmm. he's watching your every step
2: mm-hmm.
1: and my faith my dad was a man of god i mean his faith i have students of his now that quote scripture they remember because that's what he did that's how i was raised the ironic thing is my mom was catholic My dad was Baptist. In order for them to get married, they had to promise that all of the children are raised Catholic. Right. I'm recently converted. I grew up Catholic. But I never really got anything out of it. Mm -hmm. And I visited many churches here in Baton Rouge. And I've joined other Baptist churches, but it wasn't a fit for me. I prayed about it, and I was led to Mount Zion, Mm -hmm. and I'm blessed to have a tremendous pastor, but I have other pastors that I'm extremely close to Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So I've gone through a lot of things in my life. You know, people ask me, how did you do so well raising your children? It's the grace of God and I give all glory to him before we started this you asked me a question about you know what I felt comfortable talking about and what I didn't I made a decision to donate a kidney, I am so going to take go that there, out. But, I'm going go. But let's go yeah. and go there.
0: <laughs> well, you, you you brought it up. So so tell the story. Uh, you you donated a kidney to uh, a young lady who was a friend of yours, uh, but not a close friend. Uh, someone that you've known since childhood. Someone I've known. She was she was one of the big girls. I was one of the little boys. Uh, uh, Muriel Felder Haysburg. Nice. So tell that story. How, how that came about? Because I think it's one of the most selfless generous things uh, that anybody has ever done?
1: I'll preface this with there was no no one that supported me in that. Well, I'm not going to say that that didn't support me in the decision. They supported me along the journey, mm-hmm. but they didn't I think they didn't necessarily want me to do it. But as I said before, I'm a I make my own decisions. My two children will not talk about this to this day. And I understand because Muriel was not a family member, and most donors are family members. Mm-hmm. I had no idea of Muriel's medical condition, so I didn't know anything about anything. You know, because Muriel and I went to lab, lab school together. She was a dancer doll, under my dad... But I knew nothing about her health struggles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was called by a friend of mine, and I always say, but for Sandra, I may not have done it because I wouldn't have been in that position to hear that Muriel even needed a kidney. But I just, we were tailgating. And as I do, we were sitting, people watching And Muriel and one of her friends walked past. I wasn't listening to their conversation, but I could hear them talking. Mm -hmm. And out of everything they were saying, what I did hear was that she needed a kidney. Mm -hmm. And I remember just turning and saying, send me the information, I'll go get tested for you. It's my understanding that some other people had either— gone and gotten tested and word matches or something happened where they weren't able to do it mm-hmm. and it was just that quick you know and then I turned back around to my girlfriend and we finished talking so I think it was that Sunday Muriel did text me the information to Oshner. and um, I went that Monday and I remember going in laughing with the lab techs because they, they drew so much blood. I mean, it looked like about 15 vials. <laughs> and I was like, y'all going to leave something for me? So I was being me laughing. But as I left Ashner that day before I walked out that building, I knew. I said, you know, God, if this is your decision, if this is your will, you're going to make me a match. And then when I got the call from Ashner, I already knew. It was a. I didn't know it was gonna take as long as it did, mm-hmm. but, and I didn't know anything. I didn't know. Well, I knew then that you could live with only one kidney mm-hmm. because my dad only had one. He had surgery, had to have one removed because of cancer, so I knew you could live without one. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know any details about anything.
0: What was your recovery time uh, uh, from the donation?
1: as we all know we both have two kidneys. Right. One is stronger than the other. The and I don't I'm trying to remember the left side for the donor is easier to get to or something. But my left kidney was my stronger kidney. Mm-hmm. So they had to go on my right side. And the recovery wasn't bad, but I had had I was involved in really bad accidents where I've gone through two neck surgeries and some other stuff, so I know how to recover mm-hmm. and I knew it was gonna be the recovery was gonna be what I made it mm-hmm. so um it wasn't bad. We had a mishap in the beginning because they gave me the wrong medicine and I had a reaction to it, and they wanted me to my sons to drive me back to New Orleans, and they kind of went off because they was like, we're not driving her all the way to New Orleans. She just had major surgery. Mm-hmm. There's an Ashner here, so I had some issues with that. But um, it wasn't bad at all. And, you know, I often tell people call me and ask me, you know, how was the surgery? And, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a donor. And I recommend everybody do it. You know, you had two, you only needed one, so why not get your spare away? And I've not missed a beat. It had not changed my lifestyle or anything.
0: Muriel lived some six years after that donation. She died in 2019, I believe, about four years ago. What's your relationship been like with her son? I know that her husband passed before this donation was given, but they had a son. What's your relationship been like with him?
1: Trey's dating my niece. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Trey's family.
0: Okay. Well, that. I, I just think that it's one of the most generous, uh, loving stories that uh, I've ever heard. And, and I knew that you had done it, but I would never had the chance to talk to you about it. And I thought it was something worth uh, talking about. One last question about politics, and, and then we're going to wrap this okay. up. What's wrong with the Democratic Party? Um. You're, you're, you're running for judge, but you're running as a Democrat. And uh, from my perspective, the Democratic Party, the local Democratic Party, leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, am I wrong? I, I, I'm open to being set straight about that. But, but from my perspective, the question is, what's wrong with the Democratic Party?
1: I'm sure, as most people, I am a Democrat. But I had no reason—no idea why. As a kid, my mom and dad were Democrats, so you just do what your parents do. Mm -hmm. Once I got—I started paying attention to it, you know, I was like, well, wait. You know, some things just didn't click for me. The—when I ran in 2014— I was more exposed and understanding and knowledgeable and aware here locally. I think it's personalities until we as a people, we don't have to agree on everything. We don't have to agree on nothing, but we've got to at least be able to come together to make decisions that are for the betterment of our communities. Our community now is, it's not in the direct, it's not the community I grew up in. It definitely is not. And I think it all goes together. If there's a break in one Peace, it all fails. So I think it starts with voting, understanding the history behind us voting. I don't know that these kids are getting that. And if we don't stop making this as a popularity contest and a click Thing mm-hmm. and because this one is friends with this one, so we're gonna get our little group to do this until we can learn to come together. We're gonna keep having what we have, and you know, like I'm, I said before, I'm not a member of many cliques, I'm not afraid to say and question what's going on, mm-hmm. and I think that we need to come together leave all of the personalities, attitudes, or whatever at the door, come to an agreement on what the problem is, and let's sit down and try and figure it out. And I don't see the Democratic Party doing that. You know, I'm not—I attend—I get invitations from the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. They have luncheons once a month. I get invitations to go to those luncheons. I attend because I want to be Mm well-versed. I've never gotten that from the Democratic Party. You know, I just have never gotten it. And to sit in those luncheons and to be received the way that I am is amazing to me. These people knew my dad. And when I walk in and they see Greg's, I mean, it's like all of the lights go on. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why, so why we don't have that in the Democratic Party.
0: Jonna Banks was here uh, a couple of weeks ago and I asked her the same question. She too is running uh, for the state legislature and I asked about the Democratic Party and she shared with me, with this audience, that younger people, <clears throat> younger black people are registering more as Republican than as Democrat in this current environment, in in this current culture, and for me that is very troubling, because all that I see is that Republican, uh, the Republican platform, is not supportive of the issues that most acutely address black and brown people, uh, and 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 then you you say that you receive invitations from the Republican Party to come and and be a part of uh, their gatherings, but you have not received such an invitation from the Democratic Party. What does that say about this current climate uh, where Republicans are seem to be doing a better job of reaching out to black and brown people? For years, it was taken for granted that blacks were going to vote democratic but apparently republicans are no longer just assuming that that's going to be the case and they are making an intentional effort to reach into the black community so from your perspective as a politician how does that strike you
1: first let me say i don't know i don't know the accuracy of young people registering as republicans I'm out in the community talking. I spend a lot of time on Southern's campus with students, and that has not been my experience. Um, I don't know what demographic Shawna, and Shawna and I both graduated from lab school. Right. You know, her mother was my English teacher. Yes. But I Mine just. Mine too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I don't know what demographics or who she's referring to, with that, both of my children are Democrats.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I I just, I, so that piece, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's we as a people need to do better. Will I ever change my party affiliation? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But I'm not one that flips to be a Republican when it's convenient for me and then flips back when I need to be a Democrat. That's
0: so you're not, not me. John Kennedy.
1: No,
2: <laughs> not at all. Yes.
1: <laughs> and I will never do that
2: mm-hmm.
1: When I talk to students, register, well, I'm a Democrat, so mm-hmm. they ask me, I'm mm-hmm. a Democrat. So a lot of them, a lot of the students, register as Democrats because I tell them that they ask me and I tell them but I also tell them look at the issues you know when I was coming up and I first started voting I can remember being told just go down the line and vote nobody but Democrats as we get older and we know better we do better Right. I vote issues now Yes, I will, I am a Democrat, mm-hmm. but I don't agree with what everybody says. I don't agree. some of the things, I was just at one of those luncheons, and I was asked, she said, interesting you're here, you're a Democrat. I said, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. I said, but you are, and it just happened to be one of their meetings where they were, the candidates, current candidates, were being endorsed Mm -hmm. I wanted to go see what they had to say Mm -hmm. I needed to know because some of those races are gonna affect me Mm -hmm. and I wanted to see these people I wanted to hear what they had to say and not necessarily in that setting because I'm the one you know I'm gonna come up to you I want to you talk to me don't talk to the masses Mm -hmm. but I think if we as Democrats would start doing that and kind of taking notes from what others are doing, instead of staying in our little bubbles and not trying to reach out, we're losing a lot of our kids out of this state. Mm -hmm. You know, my youngest son wants to come back here, but there's no opportunities for him. He worked at Southern. Mm -hmm. He left. There were no opportunities, and that's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. We, as a people, be it Democrats, and we need to do a better job than what we're doing. Are we going to lose all of our bright professionals to other states? Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand Texas is taking a lot of our kids,
0: Houston, Dallas, mm-hmm. yes.
1: But, um, so I'm a Democrat. I'm not going to flip, and I just think we need to do a better job. You know, why are not we having these luncheons and inviting young people? Why are we going into the schools? I thought about when I was at the public defender's office, I would talk to other attorneys. You know, the crime rate was bad, but it wasn't what it is now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, guys, let's get together and let's go to these elementary schools let's go to these middle schools let's go to these high schools and let's just have rap sessions with these kids talk to us tell us what's going on you know no administrators in there because sometimes that's kinda intimidating it's just us let's just go talk Mm -hmm. I couldn't get anybody to do that with me you know I wanted to do it and what better office to do this is the public defenders office right because it appears to me the way the system it's straight from high school or the grade schools to the public defender's office. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unfortunate, but when I was working at the public defender's office one time, a kid came in with his school uniform on. And it cut me to the core the lab school's uniform. And I looked at him like, what are you doing in here? This isn't the lab school. You know, what is going on? But I don't know the answer. <laughs> I don't know. But what I am is willing to try and let's bring it to the table. Let's talk about it and fix this. Because I believe with my faith and everybody else that has the faith that I have, we can do something. I got into a heated conversation when well, I heated. But i got into a conversation with a pastor i was at a girlfriend's house who lives in the dc area Mm -hmm. and he was going on and on about you know the renovations to the church and i asked him i said so how many members do you have do you go out to where the people are do you meet the people where they are Mm -hmm. i remember when the black ministers and pastors the the core of our communities i don't hear that anymore so i just think with all of our different entities and our titles we kind of lost we're losing track of what's important you know i fear for my child my youngest son is married now i i'm afraid when they have a child because what world what community, what environments are we going to leave for these kids to have to live with? I was blessed to have strong mentors from the lab school to the university. If I missed class and I was in college thinking I was grown, that call went to the band room, where's Colette? She's not in class. You know, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. I was on campus yesterday for the lab school's homecoming. That homecoming parade used to be masses the students are on campus it went it's like a ghost town Yeah. you know so things are changing but they're not changing for the better and we are the old people now as I say and we need to try and do something to get some of that history and instill it and get it back to make our communities better
0: Voting, early voting begins on September 30th and runs through October 7th, and the election day is October 14th. I want you to look into that camera and tell our listeners, our viewers, why they should vote for Colette Greggs.
1: Voting for Colette is a vote for yourself. All of the concerns and the issues that you have individually, I have that as well. As a judge, I'll bring not only my legal experience, I'll bring professional experience as well. Those that knew my dad, those that don't know him, he was very firm. He was the best. He used to say, I'm the best I know. He's the best that I knew, and I was blessed with that. But get out and vote. Vet all of the candidates. And early vote. Election Day is Southern University's homecoming, but you don't have to worry about that because you can early vote from September 30th to October 7th. So do your civic duty and The issues that you have concerns about, know that I share in that, and my door is always open. So I'm number 83 on the ballot. I ask for your vote, but I also ask for your prayers. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Collette Greggs, for taking the time to share with us. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next time.